0: you want to give us a signal? Sure. We're ready to go here. Good afternoon and welcome to the computer security seminar from Purdue University. Our speaker today is Bryant Tao. He's the uh, director of UNisys' uh, security practice uh, security consulting practice He's also on the board of infraguard His topic today will be a, a demonstration of the need for layered security he'll give you a nice demo or two and then uh, tell you why that's important Brian well, that was easy enough I guess um, as he said I, I run the security consulting and the managed security division now for UNisys Corp. Um, so we have uh, you know, about 130 consultants throughout the country. Uh, I've got three security operations centers throughout the throughout the world, of which I'm responsible for the one here. Um, so I, I come I come to you from the private side of uh, security, not so much in the uh, the research and development market or anything like that. So what I've put together for you is. Uh, Basically, uh, a, a couple demonstrations in, in, in security. One is uh, I'm actually gonna crack a server, an NT server. Uh, I'm gonna rootkit it, and I'm going to erase my tracks. And then I'm, after, if that doesn't impress you, um, I'm gonna crack a web key, and uh, which is really a bunch of smoke and mirrors to get to the point of all of this, which is layered security, and why we in the private sector recommend to our customers uh, an overall security strategy um, that is proactive and why we need to go about this thing. Um, so, going through the agenda, uh, I'm gonna show you some new network entry points, uh, some things that people don't generally think about when they think about network security. Um, we're gonna go through the, pen- the penetration demonstration, and the root kit. I'm gonna go through the wireless links as I mentioned, and then hopefully we get to the, the meat of why, we're, why I do this. Is to talk about the uh, security strategy and plan. So, new network entry points. I don't know if you can see that. Can you see what that is at all, USB? Yeah, those are thumb drives in the shape of little ducks. Um, why exactly? I honestly don't have have any idea at all. Um, but nonetheless, somebody has come up with that. Um, pocket knife. <laughs> I thought I thought this was quite a find and then going through my SkyMall catalog, uh, I found one of these on the SkyMall catalog. And then of course, a uh, good old generic thumb drive. Right? So somebody can walk up, put an auto executing uh, file on your thumb drive, so they walk up to your computer, punch that in, keep going. And if that virus or worm or whatever it is I've infected on this little device, what good did the firewall and the printer of the network do Nothing. I simply walked through the front door with it. What security guard at the front door is going to make you, uh, you know, empty out everything that you have enough to be able to find a device that's this big to get inside your network, right? Viruses and worms. These are some of the guys from my team. Um, usually, the guys in uh, in the basement with the metal shelves and the swinging light bulb, right? That probably haven't had a date, and God only knows when they don't have anything else to do. So they <laughs> they hack they hack networks. Um, PDAs that are phones, right? these, are, these become network-attached devices. I mean, I'm as guilty as anybody because I have one of these and I'm wishing I didn't, but nonetheless, spam, <laughs> right? Um, it's been determined by some of our, our partners uh, where we manage uh, uh, networks for email that about 65 to 70 percent of the messages that are sent around the internet today are spam related. Can you imagine what we could do with the speed of the internet if we had that bandwidth back? Right? Instant messaging. <laughs> spam. Anybody heard of spam? Mm-hmm. Yeah, what's that? Spam over spam, right o- spam over instant messaging. Do you know why it works? Well, basically, If if you have an instant message client set up on your your machine, you have a hole in the middle of your machine that's sitting there ready to listen to what anybody wants to say to it. So this is becoming a target. Um, It took, I know I'm gonna mess these numbers up, but I'll get pretty close. It took nearly 20 years to get to the, what, eight million user mark for PCs. It took about eight years to get to the eight million number mark for email. It took less than two years to get to the 8 million number you mark for instant messaging. So if any idea of how this is growing? This is becoming a very viable business application. If I need to get to one of my team members, I actually have an instant messaging client on my one of these. So Yahoo, MSN, and um, uh, whatever the other one is, um, IRC, take your pick, right? I have, I have a client that I have an instant messaging account, so if one of my team members needs to instant message me, it hits me right on my belt. I'm a prime target for this, right? But it's a viable business application. Sometimes the business outweighs the need for security. That's what we find on a consistent basis. Of course, uh, wireless and good old social engineering. Who's, who's heard of Kevin Mitnick? Most of the people have heard of Kevin Mitnick. And, the common misconception is Kevin Mitnick was this you know huge hacker. He was moderately talented uh, when it comes to uh, internet security. He was primarily a social engineer. That's how he got the bulk of his of, of his information. And how does all this relate to um, a layered security model? Anybody want to take a guess? Bueller? Bueller? <laughs> Anybody? Nothing. Nearly all of these are what we call multi-zone technologies, right? The PDA sits onto the network on the inside for synchronization, and then I take it out of its zone, and I take it with me. It's portable. I take the uh, um, USB drive out of its zone on the network, and I take it home, and I plug it into my computer at home. And then I take it out of the computer at home and I come and I bring it back and I plug it back into the office and subsequently infect the office with whatever it is that I have uh, picked up on my computer at home that was very likely sent to me from Dell or HP or wherever with nothing activated on it, firewalls, antivirus, so forth and so on. So it's just sitting out there naked. Chances are if you take a naked computer and you plug it into the Internet, within less than two minutes it will be compromised at at some level. So if you have a computer, I promise you, uh, without a firewall, I promise you, somebody has had a look at what you have on there. And the, the, the comments, well, I don't have anything on there. But what you have is a resource. You have storage, and you have processing power. That's what somebody's after. Uh, so, you, know, um, you know, if all you have is, is, is grandma's cookie recipe on your computer, is that something worth protecting? what's what, what's the loss cap, um, um, advantage there if, if somebody takes a hold of that cookie recipe who really cares what if you are christy cookies you have christy cookies up here is that relevant at all mm-hmm. no all right big chips ahoy right if somebody steals that recipe that's the formula for coke that's their that's their business now what's the impact right so there's some substantial um, significance to you know what it is actually that, that you 're trying to, to to protect this is interactive by the way don 't feel like don 't let me send that preach at you and of course, uh, phishing right who buys little blue pills from a phishing <laughs> email that 's my question I, clearly somebody 's doing it because this kind of activity continues constantly right Some, who knows okay this is the interesting part at least it is to me Um, the disclaimer here is that I do not and I we had this conversation a little bit earlier I do not in any way shape or form advocate the teaching of hacking Um, which begs the debate of well how do you understand um, the weapons and the defense from those weapons unless you understand the weapons themselves Um, so we can hold that debate for another time if after I'm done here they ever decide they want to have me back um, nonetheless, uh, there have been a couple key uh, spots on these on these demonstrations that have been removed. So if you're that guy in the basement with the singing light bulb, don't throw fruit or anything like, like that at me. But the, the idea here is to show you how legitimately easy it can be if there's not a layered security defense model in place. Okay, so what's the methodology? First of all, we wanna profile our target set, identify what available services we're gonna see, Find one or more canned exploits. Anybody have an idea? There's there's a name for people that do this. Script Script kitties, Kitties. absolutely. You don't have to be good to be a hacker anymore. You can simply look for the services, find what operating system you're on, and Google yourself into being the greatest hacker on the planet. (laughs) Did I just say Google yourself? Yeah, all right. Never mind. (laughs) So you try them all, see what sticks. Eventually, time is on your side. Eventually, you'll find most likely an exploit that you can use. Once you find the answer to one system, it's very likely you can radiate and take control of other systems as well. Okay, so here's our target. the attacker, we're going to send all of these different... uh, This is basically a... uh, a port scan. Find out what what we can find. Port 22 and port 80. Anybody?
1: Uh, Maybe those guys are in the hall.
0: SSH. What's that? SSH, FTP, H-T-T-T-P. and H-T-T-P. HTTP. Very good. The uh, FTP packet's going to get killed. The port 80 packet, as you imagine. If this is a business, we're going to allow web traffic, right? So that web traffic is going to come back to me. So we're gonna have a payload. Well, first of all, we're gonna have an, an, an exploit. And then within that exploit, I'm gonna drop the payload that I wanna, I wanna set inside this server. It's gonna come back to me. I'm going to establish a tunnel. Eventually, I'm gonna be, gonna be able to circumvent the firewall and take control of the remote box. Um, it's interesting to see how we, we switch places in the virtual machine, but I'll, I'll show you that in just a second. So now this machine here, <coughs> C drive here actually becomes a C drive on the other side. I'll show you how that works. So we go out on the Internet, and we look for the exploits. Right? Remember, I'm, I'm looking for an exploit first, and then I'm looking for payload. What did it uh, allow me when I first did, did, did the scan? It allowed me port 80, Right? so that's, that's kind of what, what I'm looking for. Uh, Warforge doesn't exist anymore, by the way, so don't try to Google for Warforge and see what you can find. It's not out there. Okay, so we do an in-map. These are all all, all of the services um, that we're going to find. You can see some of those things there are open. This is the one I'm specifically after. Is your op kits, console, metasploit. It's probably one of the most popular ones out there. You, you can Google this and find it. It's still out there in the wild. So now I'm in the MSF prompt. This is the Metas, uh, metasploit framework and these are all of the exploits that come within this little script right right there so far what's this cost me time nothing but time so uh, just because... Uh, it's it's very popular. Um, chances are the printer overflows and the buffer overflows are always very popular simply because the the patches for those things seem to be out for six months and nobody ever does anything about them because they think, who's ever going to hack that? Well, they didn't really count on my team, did they? Okay, so we're going to use the IIS 50 printer o- overflow exploit. So when we type that into the Metasploit framework, show targets. There's my box I want to uh, compromise. It shows up as a target, so I'll set that target to zero. Now, the options within within this particular exploit, so you see what I'm doing here? I've launched the exploit, now I'm in the middle of this exploit. Which one do I want to use? What are the options that I want to try to run against that? Um, So we want to try to do a remote host. My objective here is to take control of the other box, so it's just simply an R host program. So we'll set the R host to the target, Show the payloads that are gonna go within that. Uh, That's going to be the bind, so we can set the bind shell, which is a very fancy way to say remote control. Now that I have all this set up, framework, overflow, bind, I'm gonna run a check to see if this is even gonna work. And right now it shows me that this box is actually vulnerable. Exploit, off we go. Thank you very much. Trying Windows box, blah blah blah. There's your IP address. I am now on the remote box. How long did that take? Not very. This is kind of like watching, um, you know, CSI or something. You know, there's a uh, there's a stakeout, and the it's only an hour program. So what you see on this on the on, on that 12 hour stakeout was really Uh, They have to show you in like 10 minutes. Um, So that's kind of what you begin. And and magically, everything I try here works on the very first time. Um, So it's not exactly indicative of of, of the actual time. Nonetheless, uh, I'm going to set a net use command because I'm on that box, right? So what what I want to do to actually establish the connectivity is I want to take control of my remote box, and then I'm going to map a drive back to my machine that I'm actually sitting at. So that drive, the one I'm sitting at, becomes the remote, it becomes E. C drive is the one I, that, that, that I just took over. Make sense? I'm getting some dog-watching television looks. Okay, RCA dog, anyway, nothing, okay. All right, so when I do a directory of C, it's showing me what's on the remote system is the point. C drive is my remote system. That's the system at at my target. So I'm seeing things like Internet Publishing Directory. I'm seeing things like data, right? This is where I want to go. So I'm going to make a directory for HXDEF. Anybody? Uh, That's my rootkit. What does that mean? That means I can completely own every service within this box. So I'll copy my rootkit over. I will copy a index.htm file, right? That's my splash page when I go to a website, right? Into the www root directory. So when somebody pulls up their website, this is what they see now. And Bohica was actually one of the uh, groups. We had this conversation earlier. Was one of the groups that um, my forensics team went in that uh, had, had exploited a, in, uh, an internet commerce company ultimately ended up bringing the, the, the company down. And within about four or five, six months, the company was completely out of business. Um, so that's kind of significant to me. So if this is your internet banking site or if this is your you know, e-commerce, this is the site that your customers want to see uh, when they come to learn about your product, um, this doesn't really say a lot for your company, does it? What's this cost me? Is this on? What's this cost me? Time. Time, exactly. Okay, so now I've got the customer database. This is pretty easy. I'm just simply copying that from C back over to my remote box, and so now I own your customer database. So any good hacker worth their worth their salt is going to cover their tracks, right? We don't want you to know that I've that I've been there. Um, so we're going to run the Cover my tracks program, the cmd.exe file. Run that exploit. Actually, that's where it kicked me out of the shell. I'm going through this pretty fast. So after I run, run this portion of the program, where did the directory go? It's gone. It doesn't even show up anymore, and there are no services that show compromise right there. So even your network administrator does not have the ability to see that I still own this box. I, ha- I still have a remote shell active on this box right now. I still have a drive mapped out of that network. Circumvented the firewall to do it. it scare you a little bit? Sir? you um, think showing that uh... system messages, in the system messages on the Windows box that you are compromised now, who didn't it show on that? and the system messages that are being generated? Uh, Part of the uh, exploit of the rootkit, when I run that, it goes into the log files. It goes into, um, uh, what's the word I'm I'm looking for? It's escaping me. When when you go into the informational messages and all that about connections and everything, and it looks for its own footprint and anything that that, that it, it finds, whether it's created it or not, that matches that footprint, it wipes it. And because, and because you've rooted the box, you have access. It's a SAM files, whatever, it doesn't matter, you have access, it will, it, so there's no, yeah, well, the, um, those files are protected, right? Not if, you, not if you've rooted the box. It will go in, it'll find that, that fingerprint wherever it is. And you know, this is hxdef, there's a bunch of different there's, there's dozens of different rootkits, all of them operate a little bit differently, this is purely for illustration purposes, but that's a very good question. When you pull up, like, say, for example, a process explorer by system internals. Right. It you're, 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 well, hard. you've really not done anything that's going to spike processing, right? Because this is, I mean, your are processing uh, requirements for mapping a drive and for running these executable file files is so low that you probably wouldn't even notice it. Yeah, I mean, but no, but the, like task manager is not the ideal thing to pull up and look for the right. process. Right? right, Yeah, yeah. You want to go into performance monitor. And, yeah, know, really. know, or if you've got some external tools, some I mean, process explorers. Sure. You know, they they look up there and then. Yeah. And yeah. Excellent. Uh, point is, is if it is in a uh, in a file on this box, the rootkit will look for the fingerprint of a log file that has anything to do with this, and it it will sa- it, it will seek it out and try try to open that file and remove those log entries for whatever reason. And like I said this is just one, then there's, there's there's several of of these. And the the point here is not really to get into the anatomy of of an actual rootkit, but just to illustrate, you know, how how easy it is. And neither in that netstat command will it show that there has been ever a connection that has been established between your machine and the not very likely. I I'm, I'm not Honestly, with this particular kit, I, I don't know if that would be the case. That that would be another place to look, active connections and so active forth. Sure. Yeah, that would certainly be another place to look. Excellent points, by the way. Yeah, does this scare you a little bit? Most of my corporate customers are peeing in their pants about right now. Can I say that on TV? It doesn't really matter. Anyway, so the mitigation purposes, right? How What could this customer have done to try to stop this. The exploit that we ran against this box, there had been a patch out for that exploit for about six months. So keeping the the, the systems patched. And there was no um, way that the the customer was not looking at their systems on a regular basis. There was no process in place for keeping those systems up to date and knowing even what what patches were applied. Systems management team did not detect the machine was, was missing the patch, right, operational. And then the strategy, existing efforts to manage patches or detect vulnerable systems, right? They're not doing constant scans, they're not con- constantly testing and retesting uh, to find where, they're, where they're, their vulnerabilities might be. All right, questions on that one? Excellent points, by the way, good. Okay, so uh, wireless, right? <coughs> so we're gonna, there's uh, when you think about wireless security, anybody jump in, what do you think about when you're, what are you protecting? What do you need to protect? You guys are live. Unauthorized access to your wireless network. Okay, why do you care? Using bandwidth, using, um, right. doing something legal through your network. Theft. Theft of service? Okay, the answers are up here. <laughs> All right, wired network compromise. right? If you've got uh, devices actually connected to the network that may have critical data, right? That's generally what most people think of when they think of a wireless compromise. Um, the the wireless network compromise, theft of service, right? Um, wired network abuse, using a wireless connection to get into your network to set up a botnet to be able to use that, your any of your compromised devices to send out spam or whatever it is that they want to do, host pictures of things that would otherwise get them in very bad trouble, right? Those kind of things. Um, Interception of of traffic, stealing email, stealing, you know, what could be uh, critical secrets for a company, you know, the Christy Cookies recipe, which probably isn't any better reference now than it was 10 minutes ago, and hotspot hijinks. Um, If you go into a Kinko's, you have Kinko's, right? All right, so if you go into a Kinko's and you open up your laptop with your wireless connection uh, and it tries to connect, what do you get? You get a splash page and chances are it's, it's T-Mobile because right? there's a very large contract that I lost in there. But there's a T-Mobile hotspot. How do you know that what you're actually seeing is a T-Mobile? How do you know that there's not a backpack sitting over there with a hotter transmitter in it than the access point that actually connects to the T-Mobile network? So what they're gonna do, they're gonna simply write a, a, a web page that looks just like the other one. You're gonna put in all of your nice little information with your credit card they're gonna take that information, they're gonna script it, and they're gonna send it on to the actual T-Mobile. Eventually, you'll get connected. Something that you can probably measure in delay, but you probably wouldn't notice as a consumer because it's, it's a public access network, right? So now I have all your personal information, right? Wireless hotspots. Next time you walk into a Starbucks or some of these places that have wireless hotspots, think about the information that you're sending over the top of your cup of coffee. So, the countermeasures for this WEP is completely dead. Um, probably not something that you want to use. You're smirking with, like you've, you know, about WEP? Okay, good. Oh, this will be really boring to you. Take a nap for a few minutes. Um, closed network access control, MAC address filtering, not very wise from an administrative uh, standpoint. Um, Leap from Cisco is dead. If you're using Leap, stop. Um, it was great until, I guess it was a year or so ago, maybe it hasn't been quite that long, uh, when the algorithms for Leap were, were released to the public. Um, so now there are tools out there that can crack Leap just that fast. Um, WPA and 802.11i are probably where you wanna be right now. Okay, and we'll talk about some of those things. So web cracking, more efficient methods available. I mean, it's just simply collecting a few encrypted packets. Uh, using a tool to replay those packets, and then quickly finding the response traffic. And basically what, what, what you do with a web crack is very similar to a man-in-the-middle attack, and that's kind of what I'm gonna show you here. So here's our client, there's our access point, here come the encrypted requests, here come the encrypted responses. Seems pretty secure, right? Well, if I'm sitting right in the middle of that and I can take those encrypted requests and I can establish enough of those encryptions uh, that I can use my webcracker to de-encrypt those, if you will, um, then I can take the forged request and I can create responses from that and take over that session. right? So we go back out to the Internet and we find uh, Kismet and Aircrack are probably the most popular. So we do an arrow dump and we find uh, this ESS ID. Now, w- one of the things that... that, that uh, people do normally when they, when they bring in a wireless network is they immediately disable the broadcast of an ESS ID. Very smart, great thing to do. So if I open up my laptop, it's not automatically gonna see that because it's not being broadcast. Seems logical, right? Well, if I simply have one of these tools, I find the channel where it is and I begin to collect, collect the packets. Now if I can crack the key, I can find the ESS ID or if I simply shoot ESSID requests at it, the ID is going to come back to me in plain text. It's very, very simple. OK, so saving relayed packets in, into the capture. Going to play those packets back. Yes, we're going to replay those packets. Let it do it automatically. So now that I have this in my capture, I can run the aircrack. All all it's going to do, it's going to take the series of packets that I took, listen to those packets, play it through the aircrack, find the encryption, break the encryption, and hand me back the key. Now I own your wireless network. How long did this take? Minutes? Realistically, it would probably take me uh, about 30 minutes, maybe. If I started the sniff and went to get a cup of coffee, latte, tall, ground, a something, right, and came back, I could probably do this about that quick, right? So, WEP is fundamentally broken. Its the underlying causes: no support for robust authentication, WPA, uh, 802.11i is probably where you want to be. No monitoring wireless networks for sudden traffic spikes, and we talked about. Uh, processing power and the same thing goes on. Now what we're seeing now and, and uh, one of the solutions that I'm starting to host now in my security operations center at, uh, in Bluebell where we're headquartered is wireless intrusion detection. Right? You've heard IDS, IPS right, intrusion detection, intrusion prevention for wired networks. Well, wireless intrusion detection is coming on really strong. Air defense is a uh, partner I'm using right now. Um, for that. So what, what we're doing is we're looking for rogue devices. We're looking for uh, traffic that's floating through the air that does not fit uh, the pattern or the encryption uh, algorithms that, that we're using. And we can find those devices, establish what, what types of devices they are, figure out what's in the packets and what, what they're using, and subsequently shut them down or at least deny the access right? or make a flashy light go off. So failure to to address the evolving standards implementation right these guys were still on first generation wireless, so they got owned fairly quickly. Does this make sense at all? you care? Just here for the course credit right. okay, so now we get to the part uh, that I find the most interesting, uh, mostly because it's it's my business, but fundamentally all the problems that we've talked about and all these exploits that I've shown you, and I've got a ton of these things. I've got phishing exploits. I've got cross-site scriptings. I can show you man-in-the-middles. I can show you pretty much whatever you want to see. i have Chances are I've got a demonstration for it. But the problem with all these things is lack of people and processes. People are always going to be the weakest link in the network. I mean, my network would run great if it weren't for the users, right? I almost cussed. But yeah, I mean that's that's the the, the fundamental problem: uh, behavior and awareness training. Um, somebody in the uh, the executive office uh, gets a hold of a security magazine and sees something that has very pretty flashy blinky lights on it. That's cool. We got to have that. Make it happen. So what do you do? Okay, so they go and make that happen without any consideration to the strategy, without any consideration to asset classification what's secure, what's not, what needs to be secure, what don't you care about. I mean, I've seen people spend you know, tens of thousands of dollars to secure assets that weren't worth half as much as the money that they spent to secure it. I mean, I don't know what you think about that, but I think it's just plain stupid. It just really doesn't make a lot of sense. So this is my definition of too little security. Um, can anybody tell me what the snow represents in this picture? All right. <laughs> We're talking about information security here. We're talking about data. We're talking about network security. Besides the obvious that they aren't, yes, unless these guys are driving hovercrafts around. What does the snow represent? It's my IDS. It's my intrusion detection. How do I know that cars are passing by my gate? if there's no snow on the ground, right? So the snow represents my intrusion detection system. People are going. Some are going, yeah, others are going, you are just wrong. Okay. All right, so this is too little security. You think there was a lot of thought that went into this? No, 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 maybe, maybe not. This might be too much security. This is a schematic I found on the uh, Internet of the Berlin Wall from the west side. Um, this stops business, right? Um, Intrusion prevention, right? We're not really seeing a lot of implementations, although we are seeing more and more intrusion prevention systems going in uh, and our customers coming to us to look for those kind of things. The fact of the matter is, is if there's an attack going on and I seek out the source of that attack and I stop it, that has a very high likelihood of stopping my commerce. That's bad. Right. That's worse than the potential of an impact of an attack. Right. So we're not really seeing that until that uh, technology matures a little bit. And I'm sure if my partners, you know, from ISS and Semantic and some of the others that have these systems in here, they would probably try to run me out of the room, saying, "No, this is all great and good. Now, I'm telling you, from what my customers are asking me for, it's not quite there yet." And and intrusion detection, um, realistically by the industry is considered a failed technology because I liken it to uh, walking through the airport security with a gun, right? You walk through the detector and it beeps. Well, where am I? I'm already on the, on, on the other side and I have a gun. Well, that's what intrusion detection's doing, right? You guys um, know about the slammer worm that hit? Was uh, released on a Friday afternoon uh, Eastern time, and intrusion detection lights are going off everywhere. The patch for that had been released six months prior, by the way. So companies that had proactive security, companies that had their patches and things in place were not affected by that at all. But meanwhile, Friday afternoon, all the intrusion detection lights, blinking papers going off and everything, well, that's all well and good, but everybody's at the lake. What good did that do you? I just pulled you off the lake. Right? So outside of just simply being a, a, a warning system and, and, and as intrusion prevention gets better, it will work it'll work a lot better. All right so I've talked a lot about um, you know having an overall security program. Those that don't are, are forced into a reactive type of s- security model. I'm actually ashamed to say most of my customers that we come into have a reactive security model. If it isn't broken, let's not fix it. Most people don't know that it's not broken or that it is broken. Being reactive is expensive. It only brings you short-term results, right? There's always a steep learning curve, why? Because you're constantly chasing whatever it is, the new virus or the new worm or the new threat is you're constantly trying to catch up. Very little time for validation because you're constantly putting out fires. Unpredictable resourcing. Well, what happens if four or five of these things show up at one time? The bandwidth, or the resources within the organization is very likely not going to be able to keep up with all of them at one time so how do you categorize which one is going to be the most have the most impact on on your network right Re- reduced operational f- efficiencies for obvious reasons increased environmental com- complexity and my favorite distraction from long-term goals and, and, and objectives all right you're never going to be able to futurize your network so to speak if you're constantly running in around and putting out fires, so layered defense as an alternative. When you start out with with security, most people start to think about product. They start to think about well, we have to have a firewall, and what else? What else do we need? Anybody? I want to secure my network right now. Go. What, what do, do I need? Anybody? Training and awareness. Training and awareness. All right, that's good. Those <laughs> not know my point, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody <laughs> else? Antivirus. Antivirus, perfect. What else? What else? Monitoring T- tools. What's that? Monitoring. Monitoring tools, awesome. Perfect, great. What else? Rules. Rules. Rules? Sure, okay. I've only said intrusion detection about 100 times. Anybody want to say intrusion detection? Still no? All right. I'll, I'll pretend somebody said intrusion detection. Maybe some ice. What's that? Ice. Some ice. Intrusion countermeasures. 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 Absolutely. Sure. Okay. Point is, is, most most of those things are product related because that's what that's what that's what what, what people think about when they tar- start talking about information security. Realistically, the way it should be is information security starts at the at, at the top. We need the strategy. We need to understand the business objectives. We need to understand that that recipe is the, the, the magic formula that creates jobs for this company. We need to protect it at all possible costs. Right? We need to understand that uh, if we're in the medical field, that HIPAA regulations are gonna be all over us and somebody can go to jail. Generally, it's those with the purse strings, so that works out very well if you need somebody to write a check for something. Right? Um, Gram Leach Bliley, GLBA, if you're in the insurance business, finance or or, or, uh, the finance sector, right? So you have these, these compliance targets. All of these things play into strategy. The strategy itself will drive the policies of the corporation. You mentioned rules and behavior and awareness programs and those kind of things, right? There's where your policies come from. Policies come out of the strategies strategy drives your operational controls like your management like your monitoring right like your assessments you test and you retest you test enough to be to be able to establish metrics based on a standard take your pick ISO 17799 maybe if you don't know that number you can go look it up ISO 17799 Right? There are 10 domains within that standard. Um, COBIT, C-O-B-I-T, IDLE, Information Technology Library, right? So you can go, go through these different standards. Chances are not a single one of them is going to be one one size fits all. There will very likely be a blend in there uh, that's going to get you to what you need. point is, is you seek out metrics, you establish the metrics, and then you measure, and then you... Implement your programs based on this strategy, based that drives the policy, operation controls, and the technical controls, and then you remeasure based on the uh, metrics that you established. I hear a lot of return on investment on security. Uh, we were with Jackie earlier, who teaches a lot of that stuff. Um, there are there is so much suggestive and so much left to opinion in return on investment for security that frankly, it's very, very difficult. What she said, Harvard's trying to do some work on things like that. Um, Being in this business for as long as I have, there's not a single return on Rossi, right? Return on security investment model that any of my partners or vendors or even stuff that we've come up with, but I can't take a marker and a whiteboard and just shoot it full of holes because at the end of the day, it's always subjective, right? However, if you establish a set of metrics within your own company, or within your customer's company, or however you're going about this, and you stick to those metrics, allowing for evolution of the organization, of course. But if you stick to those metrics, when you remeasure, now I can show you progress. I can show you where I scored uh, if my if my score levels are you know uh, one to four. Or being the best, and I colorize those things. Green being great and red being bad, and you know, orange and yellow in the middle. Whatever. Doesn't matter. I can show you that based on the metrics that I allowed or that, that I established on these standards to begin with, when I retest, I can show you that the programs, the policies, the operational controls, and the technical controls that I put into place from that period in time, I can show you where I have been successful and where i have not that allows me to refocus my my uh, my resources uh my efforts my money on better technologies better processes better people more people less people do we need do we need to go to an outsourced type of a methodology you know my answer to that's always yes because i have a security operations center that i like to keep those guys employed as long as i can right you know, can somebody else do this for me better, faster, and cheaper? It's very possible, right? So then you retest. And you have another look at, at your methodologies. Generally annually is what I recommend to have have a look at your, your metrics on an annual basis. But then you test. And it, it may not be an enterprise-wide test. It may be divisional. It may be asset-based. Uh, you may test your core infrastructure, um, you know, quarterly monthly. Uh, we have services in our, in our SOC where we uh, launch vulnerability scans daily, even for some customers, where we're daily looking for rogue devices. We're looking for unpatched systems. We're looking for things in the network that may go bump in the night. Right? We're constantly looking for those things. Okay. Questions? Anybody? I said make this conversational and it's been how do you manage so much. Of policy compliance? Like, if you're if you're a company that has that that you you work globally, mm-hmm. and so your poli- the corporate policy is going to have to also comply with the the policy in in the in the other country. Right. So that you know, as far as yeah. Okay. Right. Uh, because uh, within the European Union, right, you've got a different set of security standards and some things like that. Um, Typically, for our large, uh, you know, world-class enterprise customers, there's a global set of policies that it, that is the skeleton, and then we allow them to become specific to the theater. All right. So you have these are the this is the European set of policies. Um, I think the core of the question, or if it isn't, I'm going to kind of make it that way, is how do you how do you measure that? How do you actually make that work? Um, a couple ways to do that there are some some programs out there, and you can either go out and buy them or you can certainly come up with one yourself um, where if you do not um, pass the test, so to speak online for going through security policies, if you do not read accept, and pass the test, that is tied directly into access control. Your username and password will die you will not be granted your you will not be allowed to reset your password unless you read the security updates and you answer some questions and you recertify, so you have to successfully pass that test before your account will be allowed to be turned back on or to be turned on to the beginning with, and in, in, uh, if you're, if you're um, provisioning users. Um, security ties directly into HR, right? So when you hire somebody, you want to make sure that they've gone through the security training. So it becomes behavior and awareness. Right? We want to make sure that people know, do not bring a laptop in here and do not plug it directly into my network. We do not employ wireless devices, period. Um, interestingly enough, the companies that have that policy, we find, are the most vulnerable to wireless devices because, inevitably, somebody stops by Office Depot on the way to work because there is no wireless access anywhere in the company, and they want to go sit in the uh, break room or the park or the whatever office, or the and they'll attach a wireless device to their network and put one in their laptop and off they go. The people that employ the policy to deny wireless access seem to be the ones that are the most vulnerable to having rogue, war, rogue wireless access points. That's not on the slide anyway, it's just purely from, from, from observation. But to a- answer your question, uh, certifying, having users actually go through that process costs a lot of money. That's a very expensive solution to that, but it, it is one, one solution. Please, you noticed an increase in corporate security servers at all over the past 10 years at all, or has it pretty much remained the same as far as to the level of attacks that have uh, gotten through security? So have, have companies gotten better at attacking attacks, or yeah. are they still getting yeah. penetrated on a regular basis? Um, yes, to all of those. Um, the attacks have become more complicated. Uh, I would suggest uh, through the 90s, certainly, um, the attacks were primarily for pride. You know, Uh, I was able to get into, you know, whatever, if I say any name here and this goes out, I'll be in trouble, but if I was able to get into whatever big financial institutions network and plant a flag, um, yay for me, look at me, I'm great. So there's accolades that go along with that. Um, And then people... And that community started realizing, you know, there's some value to being in there. So now we attach money to it. Um, so then there became, you know, extortion, some things like that. And, you know, if you don't pay me money, I will hack your network. You know, that's always the sexy thing, and there's movies about those kind of things, but that's actually about this much of the actual extortion that goes on, um, at least in my experience and working with uh, the FBI and so forth. Um, so, as the exploits became easier, and as the money became bigger, now organized crime gets involved right because now these mob guys can be in uh, Europe somewhere and they can have they can establish these bot networks and they can just simply rent rent these bot networks out, and people will buy them they will buy time on these networks and they're making a ton of money just doing that so when you hook that Computer up, naked to the internet, because you just got a really cool, fancy cable modem. Yeah, you're part of a bot network. You didn't know it. It's very, very likely within less than two minutes. Very, very, very probably. Um, so as the exploits become more available, as the scripts become more available, um, the numbers of attempts go up. So you would think the number of successes might also go up. However. Like I said, you don't necessarily have to be smart to be a quote hacker, right? Um, but what happens is those exploits and those 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 um, repeated attempts become very predictable. So a patch fixes that, and if you apply that patch and you keep that policy on the firewall that stops that, uh, it's very like very un- unlikely that a mutant form of that attack is gonna get through. So the number of, it's 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 a constant battle, right? So for every technology that, that, that they develop, somebody else is going to develop something that circumvents it, right? So you gotta, there's a radar gun, right? So there's a radar detector. Ooh, yeah, okay, we got by that one. Now there's a radar detector detector, right? And there are radar detector detector detectors, right? So where does it end? Right? There's constantly this, this, this evolution of, uh, that's simply born out of, out, out of necessity. Right? Uh, we were talking earlier about file sharing networks, right? the Napsters of the world. Well, you can't do that. Great. So we'll open source the whole thing, and we'll call it a, uh, a peer-to-peer network. So now you can go out. And I would imagine everybody in this room probably has done that at some point. Right? So what's going to happen when they stop that? And they will. I'll stop it. No open you no know, peer-to-peer networks because you're still um, you know, the intellectual property question. So what happens then? Then somebody saves a piece of a song and you got a piece of it here and a piece of it there and a piece of it here and a piece of it there. I don't own the whole thing. You can't come get me for that. Point is, that was actually a very good illustration that uh, they came up with earlier. Point is that no matter what the exploit, but, uh, the uh, necessity, right? is the mother of all invention. And there will be something else that comes up for that. Um, So, I don't know, did I dance around that enough to not actually answer your question? Okay. Yeah, I think organized crime is uh, probably the number one type of exploit that we're seeing right now. Um, Is is that a very large percentage? of Yeah. Yeah, well... um, It comes back to, and there's a whole other conversation again, if they ever decide they want to have me back, The blended threat, slow-and-go attacks. That Unless you are constantly watching, and I'm trying not to get into a pitch for a managed security provider, which I am here, but unless you are constantly watching, unless you have an enterprise-wide security event monitoring and management system that looks for these kinds of things, looks for these blended types of attacks, it's nearly impossible to detect them. Because what, what I want to do is I want to find, if somebody is sending you know, this metasploit thing here that I was illustrating to you, it's like, if somebody is trying that, then I know the contents of that metasploit. There's a bind. There's a shell. right? There's, I don't know, this uh, IIS exploit in there. right? There's four or five different payloads in there. So if I see this, then I want to also look for those things. Your firewall doesn't do that. Your firewall just stops stuff, right? So it's blended threats—you um, know, scanning networks and looking for things—except only doing a certain portion once every other hour. Your IDS is not going to pick up a slow and go attack because you simply don't have the ability. In most systems, where's the camera? Some do. Most systems don't have the ability to store the amount of data that it takes to be able to identify that. Because some of those attacks may take as much as 30, 60 days. A lot of companies don't keep their log files for that long. To keep the log file, put that information in a place where you can see it and constantly look through it for patterns. What do I see here? I see a source attack coming from this location. Then you don't see it again for a couple days. The little blinky light didn't go off, did it? It shows up again is twice a pattern right probably not third time probably fourth time now we need to go ahead and take action to see if we are correctly you know uh, have the correct controls in place for that sir in the Eastern Black don't they have like teams of hackers across countries doing footprinting in the what the eastern black countries former yeah that's where that's, where that's where most of that's coming from right. um, uh, what was the name of the one i just uh we came across um shadow something i can't remember the name of it right now there's been four or five of them that have been brought down and as many as 300 arrests and those were the mid-tier guys the large guys are just i mean i can't even fathom what they're what they're going to be capable of. And a lot of times they're not they're not after, you know, you know, millions of dollars in transactions. They're after millions of dollar transactions. It's the same amount of money, right? If everything's automated, what difference does it make? And if the laws and the controls and things aren't in place, especially international to be able to take those things across seas and extradition and everything else, there's little to no risk. Why not? Interesting. Yeah. Yes, you're exactly right. That's where a lot that's where we're seeing a lot of that those kind of things come from. Um also uh it comes from a lot of the Asian Asian countries because of the lack of extradition and cooperation with the governments. Huh? Right. But what I was getting at was when you were talking about sources of attacks. Mm-hmm. I mean when they're footprinting aggregate systems, they're doing it from like all Across geographical locations, and so are, sure. you know, have various subnet return addresses. And stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to see, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, you know botnets are everywhere. And uh, interesting, a lot of the way these these things get get created. Microsoft um, went to this patching on uh, uh, incremental. Patching, right? Instead of, oh, here's an exploit, we're going to send you out a patch. And a couple of days or weeks later, here's a, 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 an exploit here we found, so we're going to send you out another patch. All right, they went to uh, like what one Wednesday a month or whatever the time is. I don't remember what it is now, but they send you a monthly patch. Well, what's happening is these patches are getting reverse engineered to figure out what's in the patch. What exactly am I fixing here? So when that patch comes out, I take that back to my lab and I figure out, well, that's fixing this vulnerability and it's fixing that vulnerability and it's fixing this vulnerability and I have scripts for five out of 10 of these. So I'll launch a script and because that patch just came out, how long does it take a company to implement a patch? Tell me you're gonna take, if if you have 10,000 users in your network, tell me you're gonna take that patch from Microsoft and go, Microsoft coder guys are so good, I know I'm gonna throw this patch on my network and not have any problems, right? Yeah, I don't think so, right? There's going to be a process. Yeah, well, now you're getting the Unisys screensaver. Thanks for my IT guys. Um, But there's going to be a process in place for that. There's going to be an examination of the patch. There's going to be a staging area for the patch. There's going to be testing of the patch. There's going to be a pilot implementation of the patch, and then there's going to be a corporate-wide rollout. Now, tell me four or five of these hacker guys can go down to the basement with the metal shelves and the swinging light bulb, and it's going to take them more time to be able to reverse engineer this thing and launch exploits to take advantage of these systems. That's how a lot of these things get created. Microsoft is enabling by doing their patches that way. So, is it been a better alternative doing whenever you find them, release them right away? Or what's the better alternative? Um, not making them generally available to the public would help. Uh, which brings up another another issue. We have, in the, in the IT security space, we have almost uh, become accustomed to um, deny all, except what you wish, right? We've almost become accustomed to that. It's a cultural inertia thing that, that we have to overcome. In the sixties, who wore a seatbelt? A lot of cars didn't even a lot of cars didn't even come with seat belts, right? Information came out, studies were done, you need to wear your seatbelt. Now, you can't find a car without a seatbelt, and if you don't wear it, you get that god-awful ding. And a lot of people say, you know, and the the cultural view of, I mean, you need to wear your seatbelt. That's the way our society looks at it now, because of information and studies and people dying and so forth and so on, right? Well, the same kind of thing is happening in information security. You know, however many years ago, and and you know, it could have been even as few as five years ago. You know, what was a firewall? What was intrusion detection? Those kind of things. Now those things are, are commonplace. The point is, is the implicit deny all that comes with most access control lists and those kind of things, right? We are becoming more and more aware and more and more accustomed to that. Intrusion prevention systems are going to get there eventually. So my question is this, talking about Microsoft and any other operating system manufacturer, why can't we establish a norm in the information security society within our cultural that says, within the application... We do not allow code to run unless we explicitly tell that code to run, period. We will not allow an executable file to run unless I give it permission to run. Why can't we do that? Because it stops commerce. Because it doesn't make the systems easy to use. Microsoft has been... Bitched at for years and years and years. Do not send your operating systems out with everything enabled and then have the user disable the things that they want to use. Defense in depth and those kind of things over the past couple, three or four years, they've finally got into that model. And I hope they listen again. I hope the major operating system manufacturers will eventually get to the point to where we will not end of story, we will simply not allow code to run on our systems unless it is we have class in here at five thirty? Okay. Okay, unless it's explicit, explicitly allowed. Okay. Can you take the speaker? My All right. Thank you, guys. Did everybody sign in on the list? No, he didn't. I'm